arms, and the man I sing, who, forced by fate, and haughty Juno's unrelenting hate, expelled and exile left the Trojan shore, long labors by both sea and land he bore, and in the doubtful war before he won the Latin realm and built the destined town. His banished gods restored to rites divine, and settled sure succession in his line. Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 45, Arms and the Man, The Technology Behind the Infantryman. The Civil War era came at the dawn of untold technological innovation, including military development. This worked out poorly for most involved. Today's episode will focus on the technology and tools of the average infantry soldier in the Civil War, as well as the long developments that led to his role on the battlefield. While we do touch on many other branches and other technological developments, the focus here stays tightly centered around that man. That soldier, hoisting his rifle and marching along the roads, is the key player in all the war since. For all of the advanced toys and tools that we have, it is still the soldier with a rifle who yet matters most on the battlefield. Before we get going in earnest, I also do want to take a moment to apologize for the sheer condensing of this. I'm certain that there may be some historian out there who will want to scream at all of the things I had to leave out. Believe me, I know. Entire books have been written on just this one topic. To explain the rise of the riflemen, we should understand a little about how military technology shaped the history of European warfare, and to a lesser degree, warfare outside of Europe. Without attempting to understand all of the very long development of firearms, by the 18th century, the gun came to dominate the battlefields of Europe. In the 17th century, melee weaponry, most notably the pike, still formed a very important aspect of military thinking. This was, in very rough terms, the heyday of the pike-and-shot armies. Pike-and-shot armies incorporated separate bodies of gunners and pikemen, who essentially covered for one another on the battlefield. Pikes, which if you've never seen one are basically a very long spear with an axe head attached, warded off enemy cavalry while the gunners delivered a withering assault on the foe. In theory, anyhow, for it seemed like no battle with them ever went quite according to plan. In part, also, armies then never had as many gunners as they liked. Firearms were still relatively expensive. They required a constant supply of gunpowder, as well as special protection or consideration from the rain. Even kings could never afford as many guns or as much gunpowder as they wanted. All that being said, in a pike-and-shot army, at a fundamental level, the classical trifecta still ruled, and in a sense, warfare had not greatly changed since the days of Alexander the Great. That three-part structure was still to use ranged troops, melee infantry, and cavalry in a coordinated fashion to break the enemy force, and inflict a decisive defeat upon him. Those three elements were always infantrymen with melee weapons, and usually armor, lighter infantry with ranged weapons, and of course the cavalry. But all else changed over the course of many centuries, many times. The introduction of firearms gradually altered this equilibrium, but not completely and not immediately. Gunsmiths made consistent but slow improvements. They would, however, relatively quickly displace the bow and crossbow in battle, 
even his larger cannon erased the traditional siege engine. Firearms had great advantages over traditional archery of any type. Now, we will not thoroughly address the English longbow or other bygone weaponry, as that represents one specific and unusual specialty within one specific army rather than a general case. But the one example does show a major issue with archery as compared to firearms and why the latter dominated. English longbowmen required multiple personalized bows of different draw weights made of specific wood composites by master craftsmen. They had to train regularly and extensively, potentially for years, before becoming useful in battle. And this effort, spread out over a large portion of Wales, contributed only a meager few thousand soldiers to the armies. Most other armies, to be blunt, simply didn't have anything like this. They had neither the traditions nor the materials nor the political power to do so. Even kings preferred to hire mercenary crossbowmen, or just to do without. Almost no medieval kingdom could sustain excellence in all areas of the trifecta. The gun changed all that, hence why it erased the bow. While expensive, guns were relatively standardized, easily centralized in armories, and best of all, inflicted unmatched punishment in battle. Quality armor drastically reduced the lethality of arrows, or even deflected them completely, but no armor could defend against a military musket ball, and that ball did far more injury to the victim when it struck home. Now sure, all of this demanded the creation of new industries, but the advantage lay in the fact that it didn't require some elaborate training regimen that spanned generations, or the employment of specialized master craftsmen. You could gather any healthy recruit, hand him a gun, and order him to fall in for drilling. In a few months' time, you'd have a good soldier ready for the fight, and about as decent a shot as most. It did not, in the end, necessarily mean less training compared to most alternatives, but it meant that training went into different areas and resulted in more useful and flexible armies as a result. There was a great leveling effect from the introduction of firearms. But as said, all of this took time and much technological development, improved metallurgy, and the slow growth of wealth to sustain it all. As mentioned, the lack of resources could turn the course of campaigns even into the 17th century. For example, the royalist faction in the English Civil War arguably lost not by great strategic issues or tactical failures, but principally because of a crippling lack of powder to sustain battle. Yet year by year, or more accurately, engineer by chemist, the problems were slowly overcome. Experimentation allowed for better, cheaper, and faster methods to make powder that burned hotter or faster. Mechanics and craftsmen slowly developed better and more reliable firearms and made them of stronger metal with better firing mechanisms. And somewhere along the line, some bright spark realized they could stick a knife on the end of the gun and turned it into an impromptu spear. It appears this stemmed from French hunters, who inserted the handles of knives into muskets in order to use them for boar hunting, hence the rapid adoption of the French term bayonet, in our case anglicized as bayonet. This was the simplest of inventions, and yet it radically changed warfare in a way that guns alone never accomplished. This occurred for two related reasons. First, the great firepower of the gun made armor increasingly worthless. Now, that being said, armor never became entirely worthless, but rather it eventually lost the value for weight proposition for most soldiers. There is a cost to armor, 
both in direct financial or industrial resources, but also in terms of what needs to be actually dragged on and off the battlefield by some long-suffering soldier. Every army and every branch of those armies began to trade away armor for more and better guns, because it was always worth bringing more guns to the fight instead of armor that would just slow you down and probably would never save your life in the end. The second reason flows from the first. Once guns with bayonets became an acceptable substitute for melee weaponry, then the pike soldiers simply had no place on the battlefield, even in combination with them. They weren't wearing much armor anymore because it did little good, which meant the bayonet just didn't need to excel in punching through armor in order to become effective. So why not hand out guns to those men as well, and increase your firepower at the same time? By the era of the American Revolution and the French Revolution, Almost the only melee weaponry left on the battlefield was the officer's sword, more symbol than weapon, and the sabers or lances of the cavalry and dragoons. Cavalry could quickly destroy an infantry block that it caught and prepared, but similarly made an easy target if the infantry could get off a clear volley. Horses tend to attract a lot of bullets that might miss a man on foot. And the infantry was equipped with an increasingly standard and efficient armament, the musket, these modernized and very effective weapons were mostly made of a hefty wood construction, though of course the main components were of quality metal, including the barrel. They tended to use caliber such as 69 in the model 1777 to the brown Bessus 75, which means that the bore, or the width of the barrel, lay between slightly less than 7 tenths up to 3 quarters of an inch wide. Now these did a great deal of damage to anyone they hit, but hitting anything at significant range generally worked poorly. Low muzzle velocities, at least compared to modern-day weapons, meant that wounds frequently disabled instead of killed. The heavy balls fired could and would easily break bones, but they often did less internal damage. Of course, they were still weapons, with all that implies, and a torso hit could easily be fatal. Now, when we say that these muskets fired balls, that is a specific description. The firearms of that era had round balls rammed down the barrel with a paper wad of gunpowder. Once ignited, the ball shot off more or less as aimed. But no two barrels were identical and no two balls perfectly formed. Even if they had been, the large ball encountered a great deal of air resistance that tended to scatter it randomly, and the low muzzle velocity made it difficult to hit long-range targets as the kinetic energy expended itself on the air. On balance, the muskets of the Revolution or Napoleonic eras were most useful at perhaps 150 yards. They could fire with some effect up to 300 yards, but just at greatly re reduced impact. Most of the killing power of the musket, therefore, lay at relatively close ranges. Given the required time to reload, musketeers could easily unleash several good volleys against a charging force, but would often then necessarily switch to the bayonet. This meant that infantry could and did counter standoffs by rushing into melee with reasonable efficiency. Some casualties would always result, but under good circumstances it was feasible to run into the enemy lines while suffering only a few deaths on the move. Because of this, keeping tight discipline and morale was of extreme importance. A unit already shaken by battle might quickly turn tail at the sight of sterner infantry with their glittering bayonets at the ready. 
But the necessity of spreading out in order to maximize the volume of fire meant that infantry were no longer kept in tight blocks to steady the hearts of the fearful. Therefore, European armies adopted harsh discipline, which became the norm all over, ostensibly in order to render the troops into machines mindlessly carrying out the will of the officers. Naturally, the reality was quite a bit different. Now, rifles did exist in this era as well, and they used a very simple adaptation to improve the musket. Rifling is a spiral groove in the barrel that allows a ball to spin as it flies down that barrel. The ball would then stabilize due to the axial rotation. Rifled guns were therefore more effective at longer ranges, but they were difficult to create and demanded expert craftsmen. Moreover, the barrels often became tight as a result and could not easily fit the musket balls, making them more difficult to ram and more easily clogged with powder. Riflemen were therefore formed into small bands of skirmishers or sharpshooters who could pick off enemy soldiers at range, but could never keep up with the pace of fire needed for open battlefields. Now, we come to the main innovations under discussion. In the decade between the Mexican-American and Civil Wars, a radical transformation in military technology took place, no less remarkable for being largely invisible. First, in 1847, French designer Claude-Étienne Mini created the Mini-Ball. This, and its copycat successor designs, was no ball at all. Instead, it was very roughly a conical bullet quite similar to those in use today. It still used the traditional paper wadding, however, although firearms makers were already experimenting with jacketed cartridges, which we shall cover when discussing experimental technologies in a future episode. The mini-ball was smaller, and as mentioned, more cylindrical or conical compared to the rounded ball. This allowed for smaller barrels and somewhat lighter guns. But no lack of firepower resulted, because the mini-ball itself turned out as one of the most deadly munitions ever created. By design, it was made of a softer and more easily shaped lead. This was a necessity to make use of the rifling, as we will see. But when this ball impacted flesh, the awful little things pancaked or bloomed, somewhat like a very deadly flower, before proceeding to rend that flesh asunder. Musket balls did damage and could kill, but many balls carved through bone or even splintered and effectively exploded inside the body. A chest hit might easily cause a lethal wound simply because the balls tore through the bone and struck the lungs or heart, sometimes exploding into shards while they did so. Men shot in the abdomen were often considered the walking dead, because the intestines could almost never recover from a serious blow without the kind of trauma surgery that simply didn't exist at the time. Perhaps most appalling of all, a limb hit would often permanently disable the arm or leg as the bone functionally ceased to exist. If the unfortunate recipient of such a wound managed to avoid bleeding out from a shredded artery, the surgeons frequently just sawed the rest of the way through the bone as necessary. They simply didn't have a better option. Even modern medicine would struggle to save a limb under such circumstances. And yet the guns themselves also saw a marked improvement. All modernized muskets now used rifling, and the rifled barrel changed warfare in ways no man could clearly predict. Indeed, the mini-ball's use was closely related to the advancement of rifling technology. You see, the softer materials of the ball were not deliberately intended to do the kind of physical injury explained. Rather, 
they were made slightly smaller than this traditional musket ball in width. When the rifle fired, the pressures acted upon the mini ball, causing it to expand to flush with the barrel. Then, propelled by the powder and more efficiently using the pressure, it caught the groove and began to spiral. Now, this was important because, as we've said, an object spiraling in flight adopts axial rotation. It becomes more resistant to lateral forces, such as the wind. The smaller mini-ball also cut through the air with less resistance, adding range and accuracy at the same time. In short, the combination of mini-ball and rifling made firearms more efficient and without spending any additional resources to do it. The effective range of riflemen, that is, the zone where their killing power was greatest, extended out to nearly double that of muskets. That is, they could effectively pick off a man-sized target at 250 yards. Good shots could end lives much farther than that. This instantly altered the methods of warfare, but of course no one quite knew in the moment how much it would affect things. The primary types of rifled muskets used in the Civil War, which we shall usually just refer to as a rifle from here on out, were the British-made 1853 Enfield and the American 1861 Springfield. These were, if not perfectly interchangeable, then very similar in weight, length, and utility. The Enfield's 577 caliber and the Springfield's 58 caliber were close enough that troops often didn't or couldn't distinguish in ammunition, since they would use mini-balls slightly smaller than the bore anyhow. That said, a truly awe-inspiring assortment of oddball rifles came into the service over the course of the war, because the sheer size of the armies meant that both the Union and Confederacy had to make use of whatever they could. As it happened, it did not require a great deal of work to convert many older muskets to the new standard, if you were willing to accept a mediocre gun. In 1861 especially, nearly every state government raising militia did, in fact, feel quite desperate for any guns, mediocre or otherwise so they would often grab older muskets on hand, have a craftsman add a rifling groove, and then tell the troops they'd better learn to make mini-balls to fit, and quickly. Although we've seen an array of eclectic weaponry used among the Confederacy, Union commands also went into the battle with some rather unusual weapons, even in 1862 or 1863. For example, supposedly in the assault on South Mountain, in the prelude to Antietam, the 4th New Jersey took old smoothbore muskets into the fight, and then entirely replaced them with modern Springfields captured from the Rebs. Many units in both armies used a slightly older model with caliber 54, which caused occasional heartache as the rounds fitted for the larger Springfield or Enfield barrels would never fit. Trying to ram down too large ammunition in the swirling confusion of a tension of a fight where a soldier might have grabbed some random cartridge box, well, that could result in jamming the barrel. As a general rule, at least, all the soldiers in a regiment would go into battle with the same model of rifle, a necessity for sharing out ammunition and making minor repairs. Now, while we spend a lot of time talking about melee weaponry, one of the most and least important tools for soldiers was the Regulation Army Candlestick Holder Number 1. That, at least, was the primary use of the bayonet during the war years. Civil War bayonets came in several varieties, but the most common was the underslung lug bayonet. That is, it had a socket at one end to go over the barrel, but curved down and forward, somewhat like a thickened pitchfork tine. 
This gave two advantages over the plug or socket bayonet, which just fit directly in the barrel. First, although you could not reload without risking your fingers, you could place the lug bayonet and still fire off a single shot, then use it as a melee weapon without stopping to assemble anything. And second, it made a really good candle holder. That's no joke. In reality, few soldiers ever used the bayonet in anger. On rare occasions, they did get used, but fewer than 5% of Civil War casualties came from bayonet use, and possibly as low as 1%. Instead, troops wound up using them as one of the most versatile tools of the war. Bayonets turned into tent poles, skewers, hangers, and anything else one might imagine, but rarely weapons. Simply put, the increased power of rifle fire made closing to melee extremely difficult, if not impossible. And if one did close to melee range, odds were good that the foe was in no condition to resist anyhow, leading to a quick victory without bayonet use. If troops needed to use the rifles as melee weapons in a pinch, most soldiers instinctively flipped them around and used them as improvised staves to bash the other fellow's head in. Now you may ask about the use of bowie knives, revolvers, shotguns, and other kinds of weapons among the infantry. There is, however, little to mention of them. Although in later wars, infantry would carry these armaments, at least for certain purposes, they had no impact on the life of the average Civil War infantryman. Among early Confederate volunteers, it became rather commonplace to get a photograph taken for the purpose of showing off a giant bowie knife and revolver, generally displaying each in one hand with the serious mannerisms of a mall ninja. Yet soldiers quickly found these largely useless and unnecessarily heavy. So, soldiers north and south discarded any pistol and carried an ordinary tool knife just around camp. Now some men, almost exclusively southern, went into war with shotguns or squirrel rifles because that was all they had. But they found these entirely unsatisfactory and quickly discarded them for far better modern weaponry, or got shot down by soldiers using those modern weapons. There was no third option. As mentioned, we will later discuss the adoption of newer technologies, most notably the repeating rifle, as well as the serious problems that prevented their widespread use until the very late in the war. But to move on, let us discuss how changing technology affected the other branches of service, most notably the cavalry and artillery. Again, this episode is not focused directly on those branches of service, but the primary point of development in these years was the infantry, and that rapidly forced development on the rest of the army. Extending the range and lethality of infantry arms immediately and thoroughly forced a transformation in the role of cavalry. Now, infantrymen since ancient times have always been very resilient to cavalry attack if organized and prepared. If your infantry are easily scattered by cavalry, then the problem is that they are either not been trained well or have not been equipped properly. The myth that horse charges were some unbeatable tactic, even in the medieval era, ought to fall into the dustbin of history. And yet cavalry have always been very effective at striking disordered infantry or when used against soldiers who don't know how to fight back. A cavalryman with a lance can strike a little farther, move a little faster, and brings the power of mass and inertia to the battlefield. Sturdy infantry should never simply break apart under cavalry pressure, but cavalry can still fight them if handled well. It's just a matter of numbers, skill, endurance, and geography. Yet, while the evolution of the musket to dominate the war reduced the power of action by the cavalry, 
cavalry still retained a potent role directly on the battlefield. This is a little secret that not many people know, but horses are, on average, much larger than humans. They therefore make very big targets for muskets. This simple fact forced the cavalry to adopt an opportunist role more than ever imagined by past generations. The cavalry could not credibly threaten musketmen who were clearly aware of them and prepared. They would get torn to shreds trying. One of the main training elements enforced by all European armies of the Napoleonic era, therefore, was teaching soldiers how to instantly form square to defend against cavalry charges. The cavalry, therefore, could only threaten the infantry if it caught them out of line. The balance of power had swung towards the infantry. And yet, even with that limitation, cavalry still made for an exceptionally useful tool of commanders. They could threaten enemy infantry with the cavalry to force them into square formation, then gun them down with musket volleys, or vice versa. The enemy could, after all, only ever assume one formation at a time. They must always have a weakness. The adoption of the rifle changed this, and it tipped the balance of power firmly and exclusively in favor of the infantry. Not only did the rifle deal as much cruel damage to horses as well as men, but the additional range and accuracy meant that the infantry didn't need to adopt a special formation to defeat cavalry. The net result of this was to shift the cavalry away from any kind of tactical role and entirely towards a strategic one. From now on, horsemen would constantly make their presence known, but rarely for direct fight against infantry. Instead, they carefully and constantly watched the flanks of the army. They constantly patrolled and scouted around that army, forming a kind of loose cloud that went ahead and behind the main force. They swept up stragglers, friend and foe alike, for the provost marshals to manage, kept an eye out for unguarded wagons, and tried to map out all the roads on the fly. The cavalry also developed, eventually, into a strategic weapon. The cavalry raid, of course, is an age-old stratagem. It simply involves a highly mobile and aggressive force that sweeps through an area, stealing and destroying whatever might be of military or economic value, but avoiding any serious fight. It's a trick as old as cavalry, if not older. Indeed, the strategy can, and has, been done in a variety of ways with different specializations. The quirk of the Civil War was the employment of horse-borne warriors alongside modern industrial complexes, the latter of which became the targets of raids by the former of the course of the war. It may sound strange to imagine saber-wielding cavalry stopping to tear up the railroad tracks, but that happened. And it happened precisely because the infantry could not guard everything everywhere, and cavalry could not beat them where they were. So, in the end, the cavalry adopted a secondary, strategic role, and necessarily left the glory and the gore of the battlefield to others. Besides, as veterans of the Army of the Potomac mockingly asked, who ever heard of a dead cavalryman? That said, the infantry also learned to stand up against artillery in a far more effective manner as well, so the cavalry were hardly alone in working out new responses. In the Napoleonic era, musket fire was largely ineffective at artillery range. Artillery pieces, even relatively light artillery like the famous bronze Napoleon 12-pound cannon, could bombard targets at ranges double or triple that of the infantryman's musket. Now, an infantryman could try to shoot at that range, but this was usually ineffectual, and the cannons would return fire the entire time. We've seen the results of this ourselves. During the Mexican-American War, a mere handful of flying artillery pieces repeatedly broke the resistance of Mexican defenders, who had nothing to retaliate with. 
and that was just three batteries in some battles. You might ask if the infantry could not charge out and seize the guns by aggression and force. This could and did happen, but attempting to do so opened said infantry to retaliation. They would necessarily run for longer distances compared to charging a musket line and without any backup from the rest of the army. And such a charge created exactly the kind of disorder those the cavalrymen lived to exploit. So artillery, in that sense, dominated the musket-bearing infantry just as the infantry dominated the cavalry, and yet all three were necessary for an army to function. The artillery forced the opposing infantry to fight, while the cavalry forced them to fight in a particular way. Or so the theory of it all went, anyhow. The rifled musket changed that. Now riflemen could pepper advance artillery, shooting down gutters and horses alike. Although the artillery might load big explosive shells, they had neither the sustained rate of fire of infantry or the ability to pick out individual targets. So in general, a regiment of infantry could send as much death as it received in that case. As we saw at Bull Run, artillery moving to the front tended to either very quickly blast holes in the opposing infantry lines, or they got shot down and forced to run for their lives. There wasn't a whole lot of middle ground left. Of course, artillery found responses for this. Sometimes they accepted the additional risk, because bringing their guns to the front mattered. But almost invariably, they now did so only with close support by their own infantry. This provided two advantages. First, infantry could send enough bullets downrange to force opposing infantry to stay under cover, or at least limit their fire, while the artillery unlimbered and started throwing shells. Second, the infantry could protect the artillery if the latter were forced to retreat, and thereby prevent the enemy from capturing the guns. Alternatively, the artillery simply transitioned to longer-range guns, and increasingly grouped them at a higher level of the command chain instead of sprinkling them throughout the front lines. Napoleonic cannon predominantly tried to bombard the enemy at a range of perhaps 400 yards at most, although this was not necessarily their maximum range. Some Civil War field pieces could hurl a shell two miles, and the really heavy guns could reach out and kill someone farther than that. That said, in part, artillery slowly changed from a direct-fire killing role to becoming tools to control the battlefield itself. Where they could fire clearly and in sufficient numbers, they tended to still dominate the infantry. It was a courageous, foolhardy, or extremely well-supported infantryman who could successfully charge a battery in front. It did happen, of course. But just one lucky explosive shell, or a volley of case and canister that sprayed shrapnel in front of the artillery, to sweep an entire company into the grave. Soldiers generally tried to avoid testing for that kind of luck. Even the most well-planned massed attacks could, and sometimes were, broken up completely by the sheer weight of artillery bombardment. Examples include Longstreet's crushing barrage at Second Bull Run, and the bloody havoc wreaked on Pickett's charge at Gettysburg. But since the infantryman could rarely get a good honest shot to challenge the artillery, he often resorted to his second most valuable weapon, the shovel. Entrenching and field fortifications have history stretching back eons, but in the Civil War they became of special importance. In the Napoleonic era fighting, two factors limited the use of field works, although they were of definite importance. First, armies had to keep on the move because it was utterly impossible to supply the huge forces for long using pre-industrial infrastructure. 
Second, and more important, the relatively short ranges of arms meant that field fortifications were only useful for a relatively short time. Often, though of course not always, armies could rush the fortifications. The improved rifle and cannon changed this calculus by forcing the attacker to advance in the teeth of fire for longer periods. Naturally, therefore, officers preferentially stood off and counterfired instead, aiming to win through bullets instead of bayonets. Thus, the defenders resorted to entrenching and also making use of whatever natural or man-made features could be had to secure a position. Even a simple trench line radically changed the calculus of any fight, since the defender would easily minimize their profile and became extremely difficult to hit, and yet might not compromise their own volume of fire. Now, as a response, by the end of the war, the attacking force, usually the Union, would often entrench as well. Doing so gave them a safe base from which to either launch attacks or invite counterattacks. Just as often, they would attempt to mash the defender by ducking behind ridges or into gullies, sometimes leading to both forces stuck in place because neither could get up in advance without being shot to pieces. Of course, shovels, pickaxes, and other camp tools are hardly new technology. But the industrial infrastructure that produced them was often creating the same kind of designs that you can buy today at your local hardware store. Before the dawn of the industrial era, many of these tools would have been handmade by blacksmiths, but now they were being run off industrial presses with modern, stronger steel. The result was that the armies carried entrenchments with them, in a manner of speaking. And by 1863, they were literally building their battlefields around them. To sum up everything we've covered, in ten years between the Mexican-American War and the Civil War, the battlefield radically changed. Although it just seems like a few small, almost invisible inventions, those inventions created modern warfare. They reshaped the role of the common soldier. And more to the point, they demanded new ideas from officers. Those men who excelled in the Civil War were not necessarily the men who prepared for war. Rather, it was the generals who looked at what was happening right in front of their eyes and committed to learning quickly. Others simply didn't, or couldn't, or wouldn't. The failure by some of those officers to learn and adapt cost tens of thousands of lives, perhaps more. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time. Oh, you're still listening? You remember how I mentioned those pikes? Really big spears for the infantry? That's foreshadowing for a much later episode.